0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Welcome everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. We are learning tonight, Le'ilu Nishmat, Miriam Bat Okay, so uh, tonight's topic is about uh, true love, or more importantly, the way to achieve it. As, um, you know, most people want it, you know, till earlier I thought everybody wanted, but apparently only most people want it. <laughs> but uh, uh, people strive for it. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to. Um, but um, but but it is important because it's not only the 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 love that we're going to be speaking about tonight. It's not only interpersonal. It's also between you and God. Um, so it is a very very important topic now. Um, th- this With all interesting topics What is important to realize Is that You could find Everything in the Torah Everything that you Any, any topic that you need Is in the Torah The Zohar says that When God created the world He said He, said, he looked into the Torah And he created the world Which means is. Many people think that the world was created and then the Torah was sort of formed around it. It was the other way around. First came the Torah, then the world came into creation based on what was written in the Torah. So if the Torah which is the blueprint of creation, if you want to know about anything and everything, it's all in there. You just have to know where to look and how to find it. The um, you know we see this in Avot also. P'ekhavot in the fifth chapter it says ben bag bag de search in it because everything is inside here everything that you could possibly think of is inside here everything including the ahava which is which is love so you know it, to to understand this, we also have to figure out what is the definition of love. Because I think most people have a very, very bad definition of love. There was once, um, you know, depending on the, on the day and stage that we are, there was once a guy that took out his uh, wife for, you know, the relationship wasn't that great, so he finally decides he's going to take her out, but he's pounding the beers. He's like chugging them one after another. And after he's like, you know, nice and tipsy, he goes and he looks down and he says, you know, I love you so much and I can never live without you. And the woman's like, you know, it's like, you know fanning her eyes. Like, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> but then she's like, is that you talking or is that the beer talking? So the guy looks up very confused. He's like he's like, uh. Oh. It's like that's me talking to the beer. You know, so many people have this very, very, you know, twisted relationship that they even you know, if you ask people what what, what defines love? What is love? So the um, some wrong answers would be love is the feeling that you get when you meet the right person. Absolutely not. Wrong. Um, so the other people would say love is something that you when you meet someone and and he or she um, accomplishes or, or satisfies all your emotional needs. That's also not love. Uh, there there was one there was one uh, you know article I read that love is never arguing. And I'm like, that is, you know, but that is a very bad... This is, like, why we're so messed up. We don't even know what the definition of love is. There was once a guy who, um, you know, his wife gave him a silent treatment for an entire week. You know, like, the difference is between men and women. You know, you have, a, you have a man sitting together with a bunch of other guys, and they're driving. No one says a word. We're all cool. Like, there's no problem. Like, there's not an issue. If you're with, like, four girls in a car, and it's just all woman there, and they're silent... And there's not a, someone talking within a period of two blocks. Everyone's in their mind be like, okay, why is she upset at me? Like, I don't know. Why is she upset at me? What did she do to me? So, so, guy, So, the guy, you know, he, you know, she's giving him the silence. you He's like, of course he'll get it. But, of course, we never do. And after about, you know, like a week, he goes over to him and be like, so, you see, we're getting along pretty well lately. You know? So, we completely, we completely misunderstand the, the, the communication over here. So, not arguing is not being in love. Not arguing is not having a good relationship. And in fact, if you don't argue, then you're probably not in a relationship. So a very hard glass to drink from. It looks nice though. Let's go. So the um but there is also, you know, when you look at people in the in the media, people that are very, very like uh popular, uh like movie stars and things like that, what do they usually say? I love all my fans. My fans are my, you know, these are my number one. Like, you don't love all your fans. You don't care about them. If somebody, one of your fans goes and commits suicide, you're not going to go into the funeral and be like, you know, I really appreciate everything. that You, know, you don't care. They, they don't really care. They just say, why do they care about them? Why do they like them so much? There's somebody that's going and constantly throwing compliments at you, constantly throwing your idol. I love you so much. You're so amazing. What's not to like about that? But do they actually have the love? There's no love. You, know, you can't say, I love all my fans. You don't know all your fans. So, The um, you know, in in, uh, when Yaakov goes and he works for Rachel, it says that he worked for her for seven years, right? We look at Bereshit chapter 29, and it says that his when he worked for her seven years, it was as if it was a few days. What does that mean? It's as if it was a few days because when somebody goes and when somebody is in is uh, has this this strong emotional connection, the world is a different world, colors are brighter, whatever. I'm spelling like, but you know, but, but whatever it is, it's a different world, you're a happier person. And this is very true. People, you know, if you, have a happy, if you have a happy marriage, then you have a happy life. If you have a miserable marriage, no matter how much luxury you have in your life, it's not going to be that great. Unless you're finding things elsewhere. But assuming people are kosher, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not dealing with that. So, <clears throat> people usually ask, you know, how do I know the love is real? This is a very, very common question that people get when they're dating. Um, th- it's interesting to think about this because this never usually happens. Uh, you know, no parent has ever came over to me and be like, how do I really know I love my child? It's it's just never a question. And if it is a question, then you have to go speak to somebody else, not me. Um, but this is not a question. Why is that not a question? Because there's no question. I, you know that you love your child. There's no like, okay. How do I how do I really know the. Um, the you know one of the the strongest love there is is a love a parent to a child and that's an unconditional love a love that's not based on anything. The Rav Noach Weinberg he says uh, you know you want to try an interesting experiment don't try this but you know he goes and he says walk over to expectant mother and go over and be like um, ask him a question start off with the question first question number one is hey what's up um, I see you're pregnant uh, that could go very terribly wrong but assuming that she is pregnant you say hey um, you know how do you know you're gonna love the baby. So, actually, no, the better, yeah, rephrase it like this. It says, are you going to love this baby? And the mother will be like, of course, I'll, of course I'll love it. Be like, but what about if it's such a brat? You know, like the kids down the block that just drive you crazy. What about if your kid is like one of those? So, they will give you one of two answers. Number one is, my kid will never be like that. Come on. And number two is, even if he is like that, I'm going to love him anyways. So, then, you know, you know they, they usually, a mother, would not say, well, you know, We'll have the child. We'll we'll get to know him or her, and um, and and we'll see. And based on his personality, how cute he is, we'll see if we want to keep him or not. That's not usually a response from a normal, healthy parent. And in fact, you never get. You know, I think we mentioned this before. You never get this. This. Uh, you know, you, you hear a parent go over to a six-month-old baby, and you know, uh, listen, baby, we need to talk. And uh, sits him down in front of her and says, "Listen." Um, it's not you. It's me. Um, you know, it's just not something that I signed up for. Waking up every three hours, way more than I anticipated. You, you know, going to the bathroom way too much. I think we should see other people. You know that usually doesn't happen. Why does that not happen? Because they love somebody unconditionally. What does a baby give in return besides the little? You know, when they when they smile, like or, you know, the whole world goes crazy. You know, like what what does the baby give in that? It's not that what you're anticipating or you're expecting in return. But rather, you heard my comment, <laughs> yeah. didn't you? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's just like my whole face has to get inside I here. So, I mean, it, it's it's good. Exactly. Though. I think it's meant for wine, that you don't drink too much. No. <laughs> no. <Nada? laughs> okay. <Maybe. laughs> Here, I can drink, huh? Okay, thank you. So, the... Um, where was I? Okay, so now, the 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 first time the Torah speaks about... Uh, you know, not the first time. Let's go before we go with that. When the Torah speaks about love, what does it say about love? It says, You have to love your friend as if yourself. Which means is that... When you love a person, their happiness is as important to to you as your happiness. And you know what that person needs, where that person is hurting. You know everything about them, that, as if it was yourself. There was once a, a you know a story in this uh, uh, sleepaway camp. So in sleepaway camp, when they, you send the kids away and the parents have vacation, so that they go to visit their their children. You know, usually every two weeks. Every two weeks is a visiting day. Um, so they you know one you know one time it was it was visiting day and the head counselor the rabbi said listen you know i want everybody to make sure you know this is boy camp so, you know make sure you shower before the you know this day and make sure you clean it up make sure everything and he says very important when your parents come don't just jump in like what did you bring me says so have this is your chance you haven't been able to do the the kibbutz now you have the chance the ability to do kibbutz aim. so <clears throat> first show them respect show them some honor and then ask them what you got the, what they got for you so the All the boys were very excited, you know, a bunch of young kids, and they're all waiting outside by the parking lot, waiting for the parents to roll in. And slowly, you know, cars kept on coming in and, you know, they kept on kidding the, the kids. The kids showed them all the amenities and all the, you know, the cool pool and the gym and all the go-karts and everything was amazing. And people came, people left. And then the head counselor kept on looking and he saw that there was one, you know, kid by the name of Shmuley, one 10-year-old boy that was just sitting by the rock, by the, um, by the parking lot. And he saw that, you know, his parents weren't coming and It was getting late. So he walks over to the boy and he says, you know, Shmuley, he says, are you waiting for your parents? And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're supposed to be coming. And he says, oh, okay, fine. Sounds good. And he kept on the counselor, the head counselor went, well, you know, was doing what he had to do. And every about 15 minutes he kept on, you know, going back and he saw the boy is still there. And he, you know, started, you know, to, it was getting late, you know, it seemed, it didn't look too bright for him. So the, um, the head of counselor you knew that this particular boy was a very, uh, he was like a loner. You know, he never had really much friends and he was always like roaming around and you know, he didn't really, you know, so, so it made it all the more painful. So then he went over to the boy again, he says, are you sure your parents are coming? And the boy said, yeah, yeah, they're probably just stuck in traffic, you know, they're definitely, they're definitely coming. So it's said, fine. Two hours later, and he's still, he's still sitting over there, he still had his hopes up, three hours go by, finally, you know, the rabbi kept on checking him every 15 minutes, and his heart broke, he says, listen, do you want me come back to my bungalow, and you could come around with me, and he says, no, 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 my parents are going to come, I don't want to miss them. So, after about uh, three, four hours of him waiting there, and no one showing up, you know, he puts his head down in shame, and he makes his way to the bunk. You know, the head counselor says, listen, and it's terrible, but at least he's, you know, coming to terms with it. But about 15 minutes later, he goes to check on him, check on him in the bunk. And he peeks him through the window. And he sees that the boy is, his head is buried in the pillow and he's bawling, crying. And this is like, you know, it really broke his heart. And he says, what am I supposed to tell him? You know, like, are right, we going to go in there? But he says, you know, what am I supposed to do? So he leaves and he's going to come back again in another, you know, keep on checking him every another 15 minutes. He goes out. He comes back in another 15 minutes and he sees that the boy is, not, is no longer in the bed. So he felt good, you know, maybe he's getting out, you know, kids get over things very quickly. So he, he's, he's, you know, he feels good about it. And then he, he sees something that he freezes the rabbi. And he sees there was, a, there was another kid that sort of, you know, was taking something from under this guy, Shmoli's pillow. And the guy still got so angry after all that this kid went through today. And his parents didn't come in. Uh, so he barges into the, into the room and he says his name was Avi. He says, Avi, what are you doing over here? And the, the kid, little 10 year old, just jumped. And he's like, he's like, I he start stammering. He's like, uh, you know, nothing. He like, he's like, I, I saw your hands under his pillow. He's like, what were you doing? He says, no, 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 I'm, I'm serious. I, I wasn't doing anything. And he's starting turning, you know, beet red, and he's starting to, you know, get scared. Of the kid, and the kid says, you know, I, I wasn't stealing. You know, the first thing that he says, oh, I, I wasn't stealing anything. So. The, you know, he goes over, the rabbi walks over to him and he says, so it's tell me, what were you doing then if you weren't stealing? So, you know, he sees, you know, Avi was holding a package. So, you know, he's turning red off, he's turning white, he's turning all different colors and he's nervous. And then, you know, the, the, the rabbi goes and takes the bag that he was holding and he turns it over and he sees there was a note on it. And it says, you know, dear Shmoli, sorry we couldn't make it today. Love mommy and daddy. So they, you know, realize now what the, you know, the head counselor looks at the, at the son, this kid, Avi, and he says, he says, you want to explain to me what, you know, what's going on over here? So the kid is so nervous that he's getting in trouble. He's like, I'm so sorry. He says, you know, when my parents came, I saw Shmoli waiting for his parents uh, by the rock. And when my parents came back, I saw Shmoli still waiting by the parents for the rock. So I realized that he didn't come yet. So, you know, I figured I'm going to make him a package and pretend to be that it was from his parents. He says, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, you know, do anything wrong. And the head counselor is like, well, with tears in his eyes, he's like, he's like, I've never seen in my whole life such a selfless act. Let alone from a 10 year old kid. And he says, don't worry. I says, he put it back, and he says, I'm sure you're going to make Shemueli very happy. And he says, and you made your father in heaven extremely, extremely happy today. To love somebody is not only to know where that person hurts, but also to anticipate it and to alleviate that pain somehow. That love doesn't have to only be between a husband and a wife. A love could be with you, between anybody. You have to, the doesn't say only you have to love your wife. You have to love every single person as if it is yourself. The first mention of love in the Torah is between Yitzchak and Rivka. In, uh, chapter, in Genesis, chapter 24, verse 67. And it says that, that, uh, you know, Yitzchak brought her to the tent of Sarah, and he took Rifka, and she became his wife, and then he loved her. It doesn't say, he loved her. And then he took her to a tent. It, when did the love come? The love came after the marriage. The love came after... He didn't even know her before she got married. And like many, many grandparents, you know, the guys sitting over here, they didn't... You know, had arranged marriage, and this is where you're going to marry. The love comes afterwards. The love is not based on something that, that was beforehand, but rather it's come coming after. Now, the question is, how do you get to that? How do you get to that uh, to that love? So, the um, I want to share with you something with uh, from Rabbi El Desler. Uh, but before we get there, you know, in Hebrew, love is ahava. Ahava is the numerical value of 13, which is the same numerical value as Echad, which is 1. Ahava is the same numerical value as as 1. To love someone is, like we said before, to be one with them. But if you look at the root of Ahava, the root of Ahava is to have, is to give. There are a very big fundamental in love. If you want to love somebody, there's a very secret component, component that you just have to give that person. He says that, the says Rabdesir, he says, if, let's say you go to, uh, you know, a parent, and you do a study, he says, why do parents want to have children? Although we know, according to the, you know, the how you have to, you have to have children, you have to bring children in the world, but why do non-Jewish parents, let's say, for example, why do they want to have children? So he says, for two reasons. Number one, there is, uh, for the continuity. You know, when a person dies, if they feel like they left over something, it, it makes all that death a little bit easier, and you're able to, you know, continue, uh, uh um, the name of the family, or whatever it is that you, uh, prefer to continue. But he says the second one, which is stronger than the first one, is the fact that we need to lavish our love and affection on somebody. Like a human tendency is that we have love, and we need to give it over. And how do we give it over? How do we, where do we go for this? If this usually happens by, you know, through, through children. This is either, when people don't have children, uh, people, you know, usually lavish this onto animals, to pets. Which is why I want to digress a little bit on pets for now. So, you know, it's a little bit of my, my pet peeve, uh, <laughs> Pun they're, they're, oh, I didn't even got <laughs> Very good. So, so the um, you know, there was a, a, uh, you know, people have, there, there's like, you go to a pet store, you have like, classical pets. You know, like the classics. You get the fish, the turtles, the birds. You get the cats, the dogs, you know, the regular. Every, every once in a while you have somebody who has, like, you know, a tarantula, you know, because you have some emotional issues. Uh, I'm just joking. If you know anybody who has a tarantula, it's fine. Or a snake, you know, because they like, you know, people to, uh, uh, you know, see somebody get, you know, like them kill a mouse or something like that. But generally, if you ask somebody who is, a, um, who is a pet lover and who has many pets and you ask them, which pet do you love the most? Let's say they have one of everything. What animal do you think would come as the most? thank you oh, very good. Wow. Did you say also dog? okay, yeah, so the answer is dog made they made, a, they made a, a study in it, and the answer was a dog. Now the question is why why is a dog the most lovable out of all or whatever it is ah oh, so that, so let's let's see so that's because it does everything for the human. Loyal for the human. Ah, very good. So it is loyal, right? And it doesn't give attitude like a cat, that's true. But let's see what, let's first see what science says, and then let's see what the Torah says. Now the Torah says, goes and says, you know why people love dogs? now? because dogs wasn't, wasn't they, you know, Abraham didn't have a pet dog, you know, that he called Poochie, and he said every time he went for, for a walk, right? Rather, it's something that's coming out. You don't have the big tzadikim that, you know, they don't waste their time. They don't have time to waste on a dog. But let's look at it, what the science says on, on a dog. So there was an article written by John Archer. He was uh the head of the department of psychology in Preston in uh in the University of the United Kingdom. Um, so he he brings like there's extreme examples on how much people love their dogs. And there was even one case where he brings down there was a legal dispute on the custody of the dog. So there's a couple that divorced and like who's going to go keep the dog. There was also um, there was also another case where a dog was the designated best man at a wedding. Um, there is also you know, and, and I don't know if you, you've seen it online, there's also somebody who put a bark mitzvah for a dog. No. It's a dog's bar mitzvah. So people go really, really crazy on, on these, uh, you know, on the animal. Now, the um You know, and, and the evidence from science shows that the people have relationship to pets similar to those that they have relationship with, with children. And they even treat them like children. They play with them like children. They even do something called baby talk. They speak to them like children, which I don't, you know, they come home. It's very creepy. You know, you come home and be like, where's mommy's baby? Where's mommy's baby? And you come over here and you pick up this dog and you're like, come on, give mommy a kiss. And this dog is licking your face up and this dog just gave himself a sponge bath and you're like, oh, this is my dog. I love it. And they consider the dogs part of the family. Now, I don't mean to insult or hurt anybody who have, have any dog over here. That's not my intention. Uh, by any means, way or form, I just want to try to bring out a point across. So I hope I don't insult anybody. I've um, seen them, in, strollers. Yeah, so see. I've seen them in stroller. I've seen them in strollers. It was very disturbing. Are you walking your dog you know, in a stroller? Baby yeah, could, like, yeah baby thing. Yeah, baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Recently, because of the subway thing, have you guys seen how people put gigantic dogs in bags just so that they can bring it. Yeah, no, I not Because <laughs> now there's that subway rule. Unless it fits in a bag, you can't bring it on. The so they bring like a duffel bag. <laughs> so I have a... All right. My Doberman is just so you know. All right. Anyways, so... the But even even more, they actually, they consider the pet part of the family. They have pictures of the pet. You know, it comes into all the, you know, all the vacations. My <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there you go. So, um, but... If you look at what science says, they're baffled by it. They don't understand this. As we, they, they consider pets are like parasites because they don't contribute, they don't offer anything to humans in return, and they just take everything. They just, you know, they need this, they need attention, they need food. So they're, they're like parasites, but yet humans love them un, unconditionally. What's going on? They can rip up your entire you know entire couch, and they can rip up everything. At the end of the day, you're still going to love them. So they even, they even did a, a research. For, for actually several decades, the, the science thought, that the uh, that it was good for human's physical and mental health to have a pet. And then in 2009, they did a study in Sweden of nearly 40,000 people. So that, you know, it's like a real study, not like, you know, 50 people from the old age home be like, "Hey, you want 50 bucks?" So, this is like a serious study, 40,000 people, that with pet owners and they they did a study and they re, and they saw that the pet owners suffered more mental health problems than their non-pet owners um, you know, peers, pet owning peers. So, You see over here, like, so what benefit actually comes out from owning a pet? There's uh, a guy by the name of Clive Wine. He's the director of uh, the canine science in Arizona State University. So he um, has a whole interesting article, and he brings down over there, he says when his, his, you know, he's very intellectual, and his wife was, I think, an engineer, very intellectual, and they adopted a dog. And when they adopted a dog, all of a sudden, like a few months later, his wife came over and said, you know, maybe we should have more kids. That this somehow connected her to, to, uh, you know, to, to having, to wanting to have more kids. And, uh, there was one scientist who finishes all, all his research on like why we love dogs is, he says, and he says like this, and he says, maybe that's, I'm gonna quote, maybe that's all there is to it. Humans are just programmed to love soft and helpless things. This is the big scientist. This is what, this is where they came out to it. But I want to tell you the conclusion that's based off the Torah, on why people have a strong connection to the dogs. More than the other pets. It's because other one thing that you have to constantly do to your dog more than anything else is that you give your dog way more than anything else. You have to walk your dog. Your dog needs attention. You have to play with your dog. You're constantly giving your dog. Your cat, you put some food in it. It doesn't have to see you for a week. It doesn't care about you. As long as it's got a little scratch tower and it's got its thing that it walks around, it's fine. It's got a little mouse to play with. It's good. A dog, if it doesn't see you, what does a dog do the second you need the help? It sits by the door and waits for you to come home. Right? It just waits for you to come up and needs you. And you have to go and give it attention. And you have to go walk it. And you have to go feed it. And you have to constantly do, 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 do. do it. It's like a baby. So what happens when you're constantly giving to someone and you're constantly giving to something? You build a strong emotional connection to it. Not the fact, you know, people... This is something that's unbelievable. Because I wanted to do research on this. I wanted to do research why humans love dogs. Why humans... I want to know the reasons behind what science says before I go into, you know, that. You, but even, it doesn't even say... You know how hard it was for me to find an article? Everything... Was how do we know the dogs love us? That's what we care. Everything was how do you know your dog loves you? Who do you think loves you more, your cat or your dog? All these like lists and lists of studies. I'm like, what do humans care about? Look how selfish we are. Like even when we're giving that, we just want to make sure that you're giving me something in return. Do you love me? And how do I know? It's like the cosmopolitan text. You know, make sure your husband loves you. You know, like these monsieur. And please, if anybody is married, stay away from all that nonsense. Do not go and be like, well, let's see if we're compatible after ten years married. Stay away from those things I recently heard about where people go through this and be like, well, you know, it told us we weren't compatible. But who told you? Who? <laughs> you know, it was a 25-year-old, you know, somebody who just decided to make this questionnaire based on her, you know, emotional situation that she just broke up with her boyfriend. Now, you know, people half the country are going deciding that they're not together with. Well, what is this based off of? So, how do I even get to that? Okay. But anyways, um, I don't know. Oh yeah So which shows you How much people You know All they care about Is just what's coming into me I'm going to love you But I want to make sure You're going to love me in return That's not true love And we're going to get to that In a second But Says Rab Dassler, let's go, by the way, this is not Rab Dassler. Rab Dassler did not bring this whole door, door, you know, that is all my, my, uh, I can say it's my fault, whatever it is, I'm just trying to bring out a point. And again, I have no mean or intent to harm or offend anybody who has a, you know, pet animal, you know, you're halakhically, a lot of have these things, it's not a problem, um, just, uh, um, you know, just to bring out some point in it. And uh, yeah, I'll tell you some, some even, even something even a little bit stronger, there was... Um, and there was one time I was walking, I said this story once before. I was walking one time, and I saw, like, a guy, you know, in an emotionally weird situation and um, so I went over to it, it was a long story I'm not going to go through the whole thing, I went over to it, I started speaking to it, I'm one of those weird guys, I'd be like you know, are you okay? You know, not like our regular New Yorkers who just like, you know, walk off so, you know, and and I'm talking to this guy and then he starts bawling crying, like like a ba- like a literally like a baby crying on the floor literally, he was sitting on the floor, he was crying and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, Is that, what, like what happened? and I'm like listening off, like what happened? I'm like, you know, you're okay, you're sick your family, what, you know, and then I, I'm listing off through like the big things and then finally I got like did you lose a loved one and he couldn't even talk like you know the saliva going out from all orifices and he's like and he's like yeah and I'm like oh I'm so sorry you know and I'm like you know I'm trying to make conversations to see where you know maybe I can you know offer him some emotional support or whatever it is and um, I'm like was it a parent you know like I am thinking he's carrying like this and I'm like no like a sibling maybe a, you know your, your wife like, like what was it so and finally he's able to mutter it was my dog and I'm like, I remember thinking, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I could usually speak to anybody and everybody, but I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to give it another shot. And I said, um, did it, so did it just, like just die? Like, like, you know, like today? Like, what like happened? What? And he's like, no, a month ago. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I, there's nothing more that I could offer you at this point in time. I think it's, you know, we're just about done over here. But am um, not saying that you can't mourn. Obviously it's part of your relation, but look how close people get to their pets. They get so close to them that they, that they, you know, it, it's, it's such an emotional strain that when a, when a pet dies. And I'm not saying that's a wrong thing. Obviously you're gonna get emotionally attached to it because you're constantly giving to it. You're constantly doing stuff for it. And that's why when your goldfish, you know, dies versus when your, um, when your dog dies, it makes two different things. The goldfish you put in, you know, food a few times a week and you're good. And a, as opposed to a dog, you have to give constantly more so going back to now Rabbi Rab says he goes like this It says so what is there is giving and there is love is giving a consequence of love or is love the result of giving like what is what drives what do you love somebody and that's why you give them or do you give them and that's why you love them so he goes on, on to explain. It says, "It says the reason why you love somebody is because you give them. If you want to love somebody, you give them." And it brings us up from a, um, you know, a proof from from the Torah. The Torah goes down and says that you know there's there's certain people, there's certain categories of men that are permitted to leave, uh, to return home before battle and not go to war. And of the three categories, of somebody who build a new house. And he did not consecrate it. Somebody planted a vineyard, did not redeem it, or somebody that wed a woman and did not bring her into his house yet. Those people are able to, you know, they, they you know, say anybody over here, any of this list. You guys go home. You're you're absolved from staying, uh, you know, to fight over here. Now, what does these three have in common? The three things that have in common, because you think about it, you have here a woman, and then you have a house and a vineyard. Like, what is one thing? After one is a human, and one is that. But the the things that they have in common is when you emotionally invest into something, especially your work, there it means a lot to you, and it's constantly going to be in your mind. You're not going to be able to go and go into the fighting. You know, you you have this and you need to take care of this. So it says the love that we bear to the fruit of our labels our labours, I'm sorry, is directly comparable to the love that we have between a man and his wife, because we are constantly given you have to work for the house, you have to work for the um, for the field, for the vineyard. And Rav also brings down a story that he says um, that he personally observed. That he says it was you know it was the war, and there was a husband and a wife, and there the, a little uh, baby boy. And the wife was was away for some whatever some given point in time. And the Germans came in, so the father and the boy they had to escape. So they were separated. The husband and wife separated from the from each other. And the, the husband was always with the boy, and the wife was by herself. After the war, they came and they became reunited. But where was the the like who had a stronger loving relationship? Was obviously the. Father and the child. Why was it stronger? Not because they spend more time together and they got to know each other in a better, more personal, inter- you know, relationship, but rather because the father was constantly giving to this boy. Where the mother, even though she loved this boy very much and she constantly wanted to be with this boy, but at the same point in time, she wasn't there. She wasn't there. She wasn't there. She missed this opportunity to give it. Now, obviously, it wasn't her fault, but at the same point in time, the love of the father had for the son was much greater than the love of the mother had for the son. As uh, when when they became reunited, the. Um, you know, so so says Rav and he goes on and he says, why do we find so often that husbands and wife, their affection does not seem to last? It's usually good in the beginning, and then, you know, it sort of like goes downhill. So he says that in the beginning of a relationship, people are, are you know, generally are going to be givers. They're notified as they're going to give in the beginning of the relationship. They'll give, and they want to make the other person happy, and they'll date them, you know. And this is very very important, by the way. Dating should start when you're married. Now I mean you date your spouse, not dating other people. But you date, you're supposed to date your people. Think okay, now that I finally got married, I don't have to. No, just the opposite. Now it's when you have to start dating. Because what happens when you're dating? You're constantly trying to impress the other person. You're constantly trying, you know, open the doors and you're saying you're complimenting and this and that. And then finally you get married and be like, all right, let's go. Oh, you want to go out huh? Fine, I'll go out already. All right, where do you want to go? And was like, where do you want to go? And like, come on over it. You, know, you, 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 you know, when you're dating, it's com- when you're after you get married, that's when dating is supposed to start. That's when you're actually supposed to um, um, go. But in general, people are usually givers. But, it, but it, when? In the dating process. But once, after you get married, it turns into a, they become givers. Now, why do they become givers? Because that's how generally people are. Now, once you become a giver and you're not, you're not, I'm sorry, once you become a taker and you're not a giver anymore, the relationship is going to go down. There was once, um, you know, Mr. Katz, who was very, very ill, and he was literally in the hospital all, you know, day in and day out. And, you know, the doctor's looking at the chart and he goes to Mrs. Katz and says, Mrs. Katz, you know, do you mind? kind of stick you outside for a moment? And she says, yeah, yeah, of course, doctor. So she goes out and she's like, you know, what's going on? How's my husband? How's everything? So the doctor's shaking his head. He says, listen, he says, it doesn't look good for your husband. He says, the only slight chance of survival that he possibly has is that you have to, like, treat him like the best. You have to wait on him hand and foot. Everything that he wants, you have to give him. You have to, his favorite foods, you're going to have to cook it for him. Every Everything that he wants, he cannot have zero stress. You have to constantly give him. So, and and he says, if not, then I don't know what's going to be. So, she says, um, you know, she says, you know, I understand, uh, doctor. Thank you very much. She comes back in. So, Mr. Katz goes over to his wife, Mrs. Katz, and says, you know, he says, you know, he's he a worried face, and says, you know, what did the doctor tell you? So she shook her head and says, you're going to die, you know, because <laughs> she's not able to go. I know I have to give up my confidence now, and I have to go and work. And I have to go do that. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not willing for that. Now you're going. Now it says, "I rather you die than I have you do that." Wow. <laughs> all right, <laughs> well done. Okay, so, all right, let it out. It's good. <laughs> let it out. All right. Let's take it a step further. All right. So, okay. All right. Worried about the next thing you're to say. Right. No. Oh no. This is this is not going to be so bad. So. We just spoke about love. Let's take this a step further into something called true love. By the way, true love, you don't have, you know, in the Torah, it doesn't say, you know, there's love and there's true love. It's only in the English text because love is love. Love is, you know, the, the right way it's supposed to be. So, there's something that is called unconditional love, which you touched upon before. Unconditional love is that you love that person regardless of whatever that person has to give back to you. You love it regardless. An easiest example is a love from a parent to a child. So, there was once a um, a story that was brought down, and um, it's actually. I'll tell you before that a two sentence story. Before I get into this story, There's once a note that was found um, in the you know in one of the you know the bunks in the Holocaust, and it says you know God, parentheses next line written <laughs> properly, and it says you can take away my business, you can take away my money, you can take away my wife, you can take away my kids, but there's one thing that you'll never take away from me, and that's my love to you and so, exciting. and this guy obviously this is what he kept you know her she kept on with him throughout the entire holocaust to constantly read that to constantly you know have that strong connection with, with God so there was uh, once a 14 year old boy who started rebelling against his parents and um, it, it got worse and worse and worse by 16 he ran away from home and it's been four days, and the parents haven't heard back from him, and he didn't come home, and, you know, parents are gonna be worried sick, a 14 year old, you know, what is it now, 16 year old kid going outside alone, where's where he sleeping, how's he stay, where's is he alive, is he alive, like, what's going on, how's he eating? So, um, four days pass by, and they get a phone call, and it's their son, and the father gets on the phone, he says, are you crazy, he says, do you know what you put us to, do you know, you, do you even realize what your mother and your father are going through right now, we're worried sick, are you alive, you couldn't even call to tell us, you know, that I'm alive, I'm okay, he says, well, you know what you're putting us through. this is terrible. The boy hears this, click, hangs up the phone. The guy, you know, so father's like pacing back and forth, like, you know, you know, you know, people get upset. He's like, what am I going to do? And so he's going crazy, and he's like, um, and you know, but two days go by and still no no phone call. So now he's getting nervous. Now he's getting, you know, now he feels maybe overreacted. So he goes to rabbi. He goes to rabbi Diamond. This is written by rabbi Diamond. Wrote it in uh, one of his books about dating, I believe it was. And he goes and he says, and he and he says. and he goes, uh, and he, he the, the father goes and presents the situation. He says, listen, this is what happened. This is, the, you know, what am I supposed to do? So Rabbi Diamond goes to him and he says, listen. He says, I am not, you know, familiar with the whole situation. But based on what I what you told me right now, I think I know why your son ran away. And he says, he says well, why did my son, you know, why did he rebel? He says, it's very simple. He says, you know, all that he sees is his parents, all they care about is themselves. And they don't even care about About him. He says you know. What happens after four days. He says figures. Listen. I haven't gotten any attention from my parents. What I'll do. I'll leave. I'll I'll leave my house. Then my parents will have no other choice. But to think of me non-stop. And then we'll see. Then he calls up. And he says okay. Now let's see if you thought about me. If you have any. You know. You're only thinking only about yourself. And when he picks up the phone. And he calls you up. What does he hear? You heard what you did to us and how you made us feel. And do you even realize what we're going through? And do you even know what you're doing to your parents? All he hears is again about me, 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 me. Of course, he's going to hang up the phone because that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for some attention. He's looking for some love that you actually care about him more than you care about yourself. So the so the the, the rabbi goes over to the father and says, this is what I want you to do. The next time that he calls, you tell him as following. You say, we miss you. We love you. We're waiting for you. Please come home. That's it. And the father started arguing. He says, no. He says, what do you mean? He says, well, you think he's going to run away? Is he just going to get away with that? And the, so they were arguing back and forth. Finally, after a long argument, the father said, fine, you know what? I'll try it. So he did that. Uh, a few days later, the boy called back again. And he said, you know, he held his tongue. He says, we love you. We miss you. We want you. Can you please come home? That night, the boy came home. So he says, you know, the, the, there are many things that that what we do, and where we're, when we're loving something, we want something back in return. That's not something that's, con- that's a conditional love. You want real love, true love, that's something that is unconditional. We see this in Pirkei Avot. We see this in Pirkei Avot, that it says, that kol ahava she if you have love that is dependent on something, then batel davar, batel ahava, once the love goes away, once, I'm sorry, the thing goes away, the love goes away. Easiest example, which I give often, is if, let's say, a man marries a woman because of, only because of her looks. Like, that's it. That's as far as it gets. The second that the looks starts fading a little bit, the love is done. If a woman goes and marries a husband only because of the money, that's it. She has absolutely no connection to him. Then the second that there's some money problems, or the second that there's some issues, the love is done as well. So if you're if you're marrying somebody or you're you're loving somebody conditional under some sort of aspect, the second that that aspect is gone, the love is gone, and the the pekelvod goes and it brings you a very very simple example. It gives you an example. Uh, you know, this is, you know, I love. If you, let's say you're doing, if you're doing a mathematic, uh, uh, let's say you're taking calculus in, you know, college. So you have, usually the way that it works in, in math is that they'll give you a, um, the problem in sort of a texture, you know, textual, uh, you know, format. They'll say, you know, this is the, the problem. But then most people cannot, like 90% of the people cannot comprehend what that is until they see an example of it. They have to say, okay, now that you have that idea, now here's an example of software, whatever, however it is, the worst. they it like Oh, yeah, yeah, now I get it. So they'll also tell you this. They gave you an example gave you the thing. So the love that's dependent on something, love that is, gonna, is, is not going to last, love that's not dependent on any, anything, that's going to last. And it gives you an example. The example that is dependent on something is the love for Am, uh, Amnon and Tamal. Amnon and Tamal, their father was David, but they shared different mothers. So they were half-siblings. Half and uh, Amnon had a very, very strong desire for his half-sister. And he, you know, in a certain way that, whatever, he pretended to be sick and then she came and she served him and then he had his way with her. And then afterwards the Torah says that from that the 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 hatred that he had was greater than the love that he had for her, which means that he never had any love for her. All he cared was about himself. He wanted to satisfy his own needs. The second that he satisfied his own needs, that's it. The love and everything else went away. So he hated Yeah. Her? So he hated her. Yeah. Very sad story. After that, you know, uh, you know, Shalom went and he, and he uh, killed them. Known for that as revenge. A kid? Yeah. Kid? Yeah. So the um the uh the, then it says and says you know what's love that is not dependent on anything it gives you the love the story of love between David and Yonatan that was Yonatan was the king the son of King Shaul and uh, David he you know um, Yonatan he was going to be next to king And then there was a question, maybe it was going to be David. Yonatan went and he hid David. He saved basically David's life in in order that he doesn't die, even though that came at the expense of him being the the next king. So you can see that is love, that's not dependent on anything. That is depending that's unconditional. It says, all I care about is I care about you and I want to make sure that you're okay, even though he was going to lose out of it. So, the... you know, the, the, there is a, a very, very, you know, an amazing story that, um, you know, a true story from the Holocaust, that there was a small city in Poland that there was, it was in the early 1930s that there was a Jewish dentist by the name of Dr. Daniel, forgot his last name, and um, he was the town dentist. He lived in a predominantly Christian area, so he had both Jewish uh, patients and non-Jewish patients. And, uh, you know, he was a very, besides being a good dentist, people came to him to just, you know, you know for some odd reason, it's for a dentist who can have conversations. You walk into your primary care physician and be like, "Hey, what's wrong?" Okay, then a dentist, right? Of course, they ask you, "All right, right, you know, like, you know," and they say and they speak to you. They speak to you there, and then you start talking, but please don't talk with my hands or in your mouth, you know. And then they ask you, "So how's everything?" You know? So, but they have there's a conversation, so you get some sort of an emotional connection to the dentist more than to other doctors. So you know, he built a sort of emotional connection to his to his patients, both Christians and Jews alike, and uh, um, you know, his wife. Was a you know she looked she had like this Aryan look you know blonde hair blue eyes uh, also very charismatic she um, after she earned her advanced degree in education she went to open up a Jewish uh, uh, kindergarten and um, you know so they you know they Bokhoshim they were obviously very successful and they had an unbelievable marriage like literally like when he would work late in the in the office she would cook him supper at home wouldn't wait till he she comes home she would travel to his office. And go on, they would eat Then you know, they would go on the side, they would eat supper, they would eat everything over there. And she constantly, whatever it is that she could do to make her life, his life easier, that's what she would do. And uh, he reciprocated in that, you know. He constantly bought her gifts according to his, you know, you know abilities and flowers and jewelry and compliments, everything. It was mamash, an unbelievable marriage. There was only, unfortunately, one thing that uh, they didn't have is that they didn't have any, they weren't able to have any children as of yet. So... Things were going uh, were going well until uh, Germany invaded Poland in the year 1939, and uh, the Germans, you know, when they first, you know, they first came in, so the Jews were still had their businesses and they still had that, and uh, the Germans were, you know, they were stealing everything, you know, the delicacies and the, you know, they were just gobbling up the liquor and the and the sweets, and eventually they had some tooth problems. And they looked around to find a good dentist. And they realized that one of the best dentists around is a Jew. So they didn't want to go to a Jew, but they figured he's so good. So they, they started going to this uh, to this Jew. And again, he started, you know, he, he worked, uh, you know, for them. And he started, you know, building a small connection with them. And through this connection that he had with his patients, he was actually able to go and intervene on the, on the behalf of the Jewish people. So the um, you know the, so this went uh, well all until there's something that happened that he tried to intervene and he couldn't intervene. There was uh, once a, a group of Jews that were you know they were they were captured, they were arrested for you know some fake crime that they didn't commit, and they were the their, their destiny was that they needed to go and get uh, hung. And not only that, they're going to get hung in town in the town square, and everybody has to come and watch. So. They forced everybody to come and watch, and the, you know, before they, they put the, you know, they, they get them on the gallows, and before they actually do anything, they go and they look around. And for some reason, the guy in charge pointed at this doctor, this Dr. Daniel, and he says, he says, you come up here. So he's looking around, he says, you know, okay, so he, he gets up, and he says, put the noose on their necks. So the, the, the Nazis, so sadistic, they made the Jews kill also the other Jews. So, you know, he was a religious man, and he says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And he says, you better put the noose on their necks or it's gonna be on your neck soon. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. So he starts you know, they get really, really angry. The, the, the Nazis saw that the Jews were not listening. They got furious. They said, he started screaming, he says, get this dog out of here. He says, go take. And he started getting like so angry. So two soldiers came up there and be like, we'll take care of it. And he says, you take him to the woods and you shoot him there. He says, you know, better yet, make him dig his own grave. And he says, I I captain and um, they take him they take him out they take him you know they cuff him whatever they, they and they and they walk him out as he's walking out he scans the crowd to find you know his wife and their eyes lock in and they sort of had you know basically he knew he was going to his death and this was their last time they were going to see each other and they had this emotional um, you know connection that they sort of said goodbye without any words actually and you know both their eyes filled with tears and but she held really strong and he kept on uh, he kept on walking. They get, uh, they get to the outskirts of the town, and um, the, you know, the soldiers look left and right, and the guy realizes, he says, these are the two patients, two, one of his, both of them are his patients. And they say, listen, we're not gonna kill you. He says, uh, we're gonna, you know, you're gonna, we're gonna dig this grave, you're gonna lie in this grave over here, and at night time, go into the forest, there's the partisans over there, the Jewish uh, forces that would go and try to fight against the, the, the German Nazis. So, he says, go and, you know, see if you can reunite with them, but you can never ever show your face back in this town again, because you're gonna be considered a dead man. So he says, "Fine, you know, thank you very much." So they dug the, you know, he dug the grave. They shot two times in the ear, and they walked back. And meanwhile, he's sitting over there in the grave, waiting till nightfall. Well, meanwhile, the entire crowd heard the gunshots, and including his wife. And the wife, you know, like the people around her, saw that she just she like literally like every muscle in her bone like tensed up, but no emotion. Like she she literally, like, literally kept it uh, kept it together. And, uh, he, he, uh, you know, by, when nighttime comes in, he gets out of the grave and he starts, you know, he runs into the forest and he's just, he's like literally running for days on end. He couldn't find, he couldn't find anybody, not a soul. Days on end, no food, no water. Finally, he feels like he's gonna pass out. And he sees, uh, this, this cottage in the middle of the forest. So he goes and he says, you know what? Nazi, non-Nazi, German, I don't care, whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. He goes and he knocks on the door. And the guy opens up. This guy's like literally half dead, and he's like, he's like, he quickly brings him in, and he tells him, he tells him the whole story. So listen, I'm a Jew. I ran away. Can you please help me? And, he says, and this guy happened to be one of the, you know, the the, the good, uh, you know, at the time. And he went and he started, you know, not only that, he gave him uh, food and he gave him water and basically, you know, gave him a place to sleep. And he says, listen, sleep here tonight. Yeah, obviously I can't let you stay over here, but I'll point you to the direction where all the Jews are hanging out in the forest. So. He goes, he sleeps there, he gets, he feels a little bit rejuvenated, and he points him in the direction where all the Jews are, are in the forest. They go over there, and, uh, once they get, you know, he gets reunited with all his fellow, you know, Jews, he sees, not only that, they even recognized him from his, you know, back in town, and they were so happy. First of all, because their teeth were already getting rotten, so now they have a dentist out there, because they're living in the forest. So they said, uh, you know, so he actually then opened up a second thriving practice, and this time it was in the, it was in, it was in the, the forest. But besides being a dentist for all his fellow brothers and, and sisters over there, he also went and, um, he also became one of the fighters. He was a young guy and he was, you know, he was able, so he became in, you know, the, you know, active acts of whatever they were doing against the Germans, and several times he almost got captured, several times he almost got killed, every, somehow, always miraculously, uh, getting, uh, you know, getting out of it. And, um, you know, throughout this entire ordeal, he lasted there five years. Five years he was in the forest over there with the, and throughout the entire time, there was one thing that was constantly in his mind. And that was his wife. His wife's name was Eliza. Uh, constantly non-stop on, on his mind, his wife. And he was constantly praying for her and, you know, please God have me, keep her, you know, safe, let him be, be reunited. This is constantly the, the one thing that was going on for him. Then, um, you know, but when when he, uh, you know, came to, when he met all the Jews, he realized that he never told, you know, the soldiers, be like, listen, tell my wife that I'm not dead. You know, that you say, you know, he never told them that. He's like, he's like, did they tell her? He's like, I don't know, maybe they told her, maybe they didn't tell her. Um, uh, the, the truth was they didn't tell her. I didn't tell her and she mourned. She mourned for her husband's death, even though that he wasn't, he wasn't dead for five years. And, um, you know, after, after the Germany was liberated, the, um, first thing that, you know, people did is go to see for their fellow survivors. And he went to the search. The first thing that he went to do is check for, you know, Elisa. You know, he kept on looking, you know, one after another, you know, all the forms, and he couldn't find, he couldn't find her on the alive section. Now he was getting really nervous, and, you know, started crying. He went into the, you know, the, the deceased uh, section, and he's, she's not there either. So he's like, he became like really confused. She's not here. He searched high and low, and he made a vow. He says, one thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna find out what happened to my wife. Says, this is his beloved wife that constantly throughout the entire five years, he, this is all that he thought, thought about. So, um, you know, after he saw that, you know, you know, after searching and searching, he saw that he couldn't find anything, he decided he's going to go and, to Israel. And he go and he joined the Haganah. The Haganah later it turned out to be, to turn into the IDF, the Israeli Defense uh, Forces. But before that it was known as the Haganah. So he, he joined the, uh, the Haganah and he, you know, being that he had five years of fighting experience, he actually fit very, very well over there. And, um, the he used his this opportunity to go and search for you know he had a lot more connections now so he would constantly search for his wife Aliza, see where she is so the um you know the way that he you know generally went is is the, you know he went you know generally people have the highs and lows when he was high you know he was good but then sometimes he fell into like this you know almost a depression you know it's been so long what's with my wife where is she and during these. Times he you know opened up his trusty tehillim, he opened up his tehillim, and the way that he the way that it worked every time when when he felt this emotional uh, you know breakdown coming, he would go and say verse by verse and as his eyes filled with tears and he couldn't see anymore from the tears that in his eyes he finished quickly the, the, uh, the, the, the rest of the chapter of telim. he put the Telim in his eye, covered his face and then he just started bawling, crying and having a conversation with God that's all he started talking to God he says please God he says you gotta help me out over here he says listen he says all my friends that came back over here they threw religion away he says I kept it over here I kept it I'm trying to hold on strong but I'm begging you I'm begging you please throw me a bone he says please help me find my beloved wife I cannot go on without her and he says, and then with a pause, he added, he says, uh, you know, it's been a while. He says, at least let me find closure. And with that, he came from another fresh set of tears. Um, at, you know, the, his, command, uh, his commander, his captain, you know, he saw like one of his best men, like going through these emotional belts. So, um, you know, he, there was a, a mission that came in and he figured, you know what? This guy is going to be the perfect uh, perfect one. Anytime that there was some sort of mission in Europe or that, he sent him right away. Because this way, at least he'll get him out of there, get his mind off it. And additionally, he'll help him start looking for, maybe he can find something about information on his wife. So, there was a... Um, there was a, a uh, mission that came in, and the mission was there was there was three children in an orphanage, and they were stuck in a, in a Christian orphanage that needed to be rescued. So they needed t- two people. So he said right away, Daniel, he's going to be number one. And uh, then they went, and uh, you know, he went and he picked up uh, you know somebody else, a uh, you know one of his uh, Daniel's friend, Mordechai, to go along with them. And he go and they briefed them on the mission. The mission is is um, you're going to go into into this uh, Christian orphanage in somewhere in in uh, Poland, and you are going to be pretending to be British uh, um, uh, newspaper editors and you're writing an article on post war something you know about the orphanages and things like something along those lines and they gave them passports of uh, British passports they gave gave them everything so um, they went and they made their way uh, they made their way out so Meanwhile, with Paul's story over here, let's go back to what happened with his wife. His wife, you know, Aliza, when she, after that, she heard the gunshots, she started mourning for her husband. She realized that her husband, um, you know, passed away and she's going to have to, uh, move on with, uh, you know, with her life. Uh, a few days go by, um, and she's in her, she walks into her apartment and she sees there's an envelope on the table. So she goes and she opens up the envelope and in the envelope, she sees a false Polish passport and with it included there's the genealogical history of her, you know, of her complete pure Polish ancestry and there's like a there's, there's a, there's a wad of like a small amount of money over there. Basically, a ticket for her out. So, she goes over and she runs right away to, to the rabbi. She says, you know, she says, rabbi, what am I supposed to do? She says, you know, I have all my children in my, the kindergarten that she runs. She says, I can't just leave them. She says, but I have, I have a way out. So the rabbi says, listen, he says, uh, you know, this, you know, the, the, the halakha is that your life comes first. If you have a way to save your life, save your life. And says, so you never know, go out, you know, maybe you'll be able from this, you'll be able to actually save some Jews. So, she went, she took the rabbi's advice, and she left. She left, um, and she went to a place, I think near Czechoslovakia. And um, she went over there, and she, um, she actually was no problem. She got out safely and smoothly, and she went to enroll in a, uh, to become a teacher in a Christian orphanage. And um, she goes over there, and she's, you know, she's working in this orphanage as a teacher, and she realizes that there are three children that stick out amongst all the other children. And, you know, everybody else was the blonde hair, blue eyes, and there's, like, you know, like, black eyes, you know, black hair uh, going on. And she goes over... And uh, she she constantly had her eye on those like this doesn't this something is wrong over here. One time she was asked to bathe the little there was you know it was a boy and two girls. She one time was asked to bathe the little boy. Um, They were still very very young, and so she's bathing him and you know her suspicion even grew more because she saw that he was circumcised. So she says now I have to get to the bottom of it. So she went uh, one night and she snuck into the um, into the cabinets where they keep all the files, and she searched those three kids and she saw that they both had you know Jewish ancestry. They're both there are all three of them are Jewish. So she realized now, you know, she was, you know, gave up. She was so depressed from the loss of her husband. She says, okay, you know what? Now I have a, you know, I have a will to survive. For the ne- and for the next five years during the war, her sole mission was to, was to watch over these three kids. She watched over it as if they were her own children and her goal was after the war to get them out. Now, after after the war um, finished, she went and she she went over to a you know the Jewish aid society that was setting up over there and said, listen, this is my situation. I got three Jews over here in the Christian orphanage. Can you help me get them out? And they were like, you know, listen, we just set up over here. We don't know how to deal with the situation right now. But you know, meanwhile, stay over there, continue doing what you're doing, and we'll we'll try to work something out. So she's staying, staying over there as a few months go by, and uh, she and, and then suddenly they, they get around to it, and they send, a, um, they send this you know, delegation basically to this Christian orphanage and say, listen, we came to the realization that there's three Jews over here by the name of, give them the same names, can, you know, and we're here to take them back home to Israel. So the, the orphanage completely denies. says, what are you talking about? We don't have any Jews over here. Absolutely not. There's no, they're all Christian over here. And so they saw that didn't work, so they tried to bribe them. They try to offer them substantial amounts of money. They said, there's, not, there's no Jews over here. There's not, I don't know what you guys are talking about. They would refuse to do it. So when they realized that they, it was a dead end, so they send this to the Haganah. They send it to Israel. They said, listen, you know, we're, our, our hands are tied. Maybe you guys could do something about it. So this is where... Uh, Daniel and Mordechai came into play, so they got the um, they got the they, they briefed the you know from the 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 society over here the Jewish Aid Society. They briefed you know they said listen, there's going to be two people come in pretending to be British you know editors. Uh, what are they called? Not editors, journalists. whatever <laughs> journalists. Thank you. Um, so so the two British journalists they come in and you go and you uh, they'll, they'll set up with you for the extraction and everything that you need to do. So she said fine. Um, they get the the date and Mordechai and Daniel, they arrive, they land, they go straight to the orphanage. When they get into the orphanage, they go, the, the director over there is going and he's giving them the tour. You know, he's going to, come on, you know, you're going to get it in the paper now. He's giving the tour and this is what we do over here. This is what we do here. Meanwhile, they're just scanning the entire area, A, for routes of escape and how to h- how to plan it. You know, so, um, which is what some people do also on dates. So, um, <laughs> the, they go and they they are, you know, as they're walking through, they see, you know, uh, Daniel goes and he, st- he stops he sees a girl in the corner a blonde lady in the corner immersed in reading a book and he freezes and he starts t- tensing up and you know his, his partner over there Mordechai, sees him and he says he says uh, yo you alright you all right? You're cool what's going on and you know he's like frozen and he's like he's like that woman over there and he's like he's like what about her and he's like he's like stammering he's like that's my wife and he's like, are you sure? He's like, I'm, you know, she lost a lot of weight. It's been five years, but that's my wife. And he's like, you know, so he quickly like, all right, they, they quickly told the director, all right, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you." And they, you know, rendezvoused, you know, at a different point in time. And uh, they, they said, listen, we can't just go over and tell her, hey, listen, your husband is right here because she's going to flip out. She's going to, you know, she's going to jeopardize the whole mission. So Mordecai said, listen, I'm going to go meet with her. You stay out of this. I'll let her know, I'll let her know the extraction time and we'll deal with the debt. And he says, fine. So he goes over and, uh, to her, you know, he's dealing with soldiers, you know, men that have been at war for like six, seven years, you know, don't have the same sense of abilities, you know, you know, they realize enough that we can't tell her straight away. But they didn't realize is that they walked, he basically walked into her, uh, when she was basically saying a story to the entire class. And he goes over to her and he whispers in her ear and he says, um, and he says, listen, we're the two, uh, journalists, um, 2 a.m. tonight. So she nods her head, and then he says. And then he says one more thing, and then he says, um, "By the way, he says um, your husband's still alive, and he's here." Um, And her entire face freezes. Her entire emotions, you know, her entire eyes swell up. But she, she was like hard, you know, she was good, she was solid, and she was like she nods her head. And he's like, he's like, she's, you know, of course, I don't know what he said. Be cool, but it was, you know, something along those lines, it's like, like, you know, be cool. Oh, so, um, and she's like, she nods, she nods ahead, and she was good. She went right back on to reading. She went right back onto reading to the class. So, two, uh, you know, two a.m. Uh, comes, and um, suddenly she goes out. She goes a few minutes before two, she goes out. And she sees, uh, you know, it scares her now. Of so there's a guard that's standing by the door. So the guard says, you know, says, you know, Miss Lisa, you know, it's like, well, you know, what you doing so late at night? Aren't you tired? Says, Why don't you go to sleep? I says, you know, I have a terrible headache, You know, I just want to get out, get some fresh air. Maybe I'll, you know, clear my mind. He's like, oh yeah, of course. You know, tips his hat to her. You know, enjoy your walk. So she walks. She walks right around, right outside, and she sees there are two men standing in the corner over there. And uh, they sort of pretend, you know, she, no connection so far. They completely ignored each other. And um, they said, you know, she said, listen, there's a guard over here by the door. We have to do something excuse me about it so they pretended to be drunk these two guys and she goes she runs over to the guard and says listen can you help us um, I was walking over here and one of these guys you know is like seriously drunk can you help them bring them inside over here so the guard says yeah yeah of course so he goes out and one guy was was pretending to be extremely drunk that was uh, Daniela, her husband and the other guy Mordechai, was the guy who was uh, you know Tipsy, but still, you know, more or less sober. And they go over to this, uh, um, you know, he goes over and he, you know, the, so Mordecai holds, holds him by, by one hand, the other guy holds him, the, the guard holds him by the other hand, and they start making the way back up the stairs. And they put him down, they sit him down by the chair over there, and Mordecai says, you know, thank you so much, I appreciate you helping my friend. He says, here, maybe you want a, sw- a swig of my uh, a whiskey? So the guard was like, uh, only too happy to oblige. He's like, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. He goes and he takes a big, you know, chug down. And a few seconds later, he's sleeping like a baby on the floor. And uh, um, you know they they both you know go get up and they walk in and he says don't worry he says we have enough medicine in there to keep them asleep for a very long time so um, they go inside they get the kids and within like two minutes you know like good special ops you do that you're in and out they were like in and out within two you know she had everything packed everything prepared within two minutes they were already out with the three kids in a car that was running around the corner and so Aliza sat back with the three children and they two sat uh, sat up on the front Mordecai was driving Daniel was in the passenger seat. The entire ride, they didn't even let their emotions get it because they had to focus on getting out of the border before they're able to go and, you know, make sure that they're clear. But the entire time, he turns around and he was just staring at his wife without a word. And she was staring at him and just like tears just dripping down. Finally, they after a few hours, they were able to get across the border. It's not humane. This whole, Nazi Germany was not humane. So they they go and they um, when they get when they you know after they get across the border they were in a plane within within a few hours after they crossed the border they were able to actually you know fully uh, you know show their emotions they were able to actually you know fully fully connect and and uh, you know explain what what actually happened and what went on these um, you know. So obviously they, you know, they were happily married and they stayed together. But unfortunately, they were not able to have any children. Still, but they did adopt these three children and raise them as their as their own. And they had an unbelievable, fascinating, crazy, crazy, unbelievable marriage. And the. You know, th- this is something that, you know what's true love? True love is even when the connection is severed and that the, it's, it's still not there anymore, but the drive to be together, the drive to just want the other person so strongly is still there that they were able to continue right where they left off. Where did this all strive from? The fact that they were able to go and give. They went and they constantly gave to each other. It wasn't a selfish relationship. It was a, it was a relationship of, of giving. I'm sorry, I know it's running late. Give me a few more minutes and we're, we're almost like done. The, um, the villain Vilna goes and says, Well good." The Vilna Gon goes like this, and he says, and he says, um, what is the ultimate purpose of, of marriage? He says, if a, if a, until the husband and wife create an emotional bond between them that's strong enough to make them feel like a single organism, the marriage did not fulfill its purpose, because the purpose is to make you feel united as one. Says the Vilna Gon, he says, originally man was created one. Man and woman were created back to back. Then they were separated. They were split into two. He says, "Why? Why couldn't God just originally create two separate people? Why did He have to create them together to separate them only to bring them back together again?" It says the God explains this fascinating. He says that man was the, what were we created to worship God? But how are you going to go and worship God? The first step in able to be able to worship somebody else is to able to stop worshiping yourself. And that's the first step. And it says the bond between a man and a woman is able to reach that that, uh, purpose of creation. Because when you are married, when you have this this emotional connection, you're able to go and you're able to stop thinking about yourself for a moment and think about somebody else. Once you have that ability, now you have that ability to go and continue to serve God in the way that you're supposed to serve God. I want to finish off with one, the final story. Um, that there was um, once a divorced woman, and uh, this is a divorced woman. Her name was uh, Chevy. She lived in Manchester, England. Anybody who knows Manchester, England, it's um, you see the sunshine there maybe about four, five hours a year, right? It's like never. It's like always cloudy, always rainy. Ask anybody from Manchester, it'd be like, "Have you seen the sun?" It'd be like, "The bloody sun! I've never seen it." You know? So they, it's it's always rainy. It's always a uh, So she lived over here and... He goes and, and uh, she had a, a very very bitter divorce uh, um, with her with her ex. And uh, besides that, um, her ex was very abusive and very. It was a very a terrible situation. They got divorced, and to make matters even worse, she was originally from New York. But her ex, being that she had two kids, she had two girls, a three year old and a five year old. He says, "You're not leaving England." He like forbid her from he like somehow legally made it that she's not allowed to leave England, so she can't even go back home. She was stuck in England, and she had this you know job that wasn't obviously making too much money. And and uh, the problem was that her boss, you know, was going through some hard times and he hasn't paid her in quite some time. And he kept on apologizing to her, listen, I'm, you know, I'm trying, I'm working hard, hopefully this thing's gonna go through and be able to pay you for everything that you worked. And, uh, she, you know, she was in a dilemma. She says, what am I supposed to do? She says, you know, says, I'm technically working for free, but at the same point, you know, well, I, could, I could go find a job somewhere else. But he was so good to her that if she needed to go, she was a single mother. If she needed to go and and pick up the kids or leave early or not able to make one day, he was very, very considerate. So she was, you know, stuck between two worlds and not sure what to do. And uh, she stayed working for him, but it was getting extremely, extremely difficult because no money was uh, was coming in and, uh, you know, her funds, rent was due, the fridge was uh, empty, the freezer was empty, the pantry was empty. And besides that, her, her husband was also delinquent on the child support. He wasn't paying anything. So, um, you know, it, it was getting, you know, very, very, you know, serious. And uh, her mother calls her out from New York and says, listen, Shavuot is coming up. Why don't you come, why don't you come home? Come home for Shavuot. And she says, listen, mom. He says, I would love to come home. I says, what about, the only way I'm coming home is if I'm coming home alone. I'm leaving my two kids over here and I'm not doing that. And, um, you know, so she went, you know, generally at this point in time she went through her usual routine which was, you know, work, come home, Cry, you know, deal a little something with it, then cry some more, and then go uh, um, through it. So she was going through a daily routine. She was crying, and um, you know, and unfortunately, her kids. This was they got used to. They got used to this uh, this routine. It came close, uh, you know, to uh, to Shavuot, and she arranged, being that she didn't have really have any food in the house, she arranged that she was going to eat a few meals by her best friend, and another meal she was going to eat by the rabbi's house. So um, you know, she's it's it's uh, the day before Shavuot. She gets, a, she gets a call from her best friend. And she says, uh, listen, uh, that she's going to the meals. And he says, listen, you know, something terrible came up. She says, you know, my, her, father, this, this, her best friend's father-in-law just fell down and broke like a hip or something like that. And he says, the whole family is going to be with him over there, so we're not going to be home for Shavuot. He says, I'm so sorry. I know you're coming to me for a lot of meals. I'm not going to be home. Um, she says, but if you want, I could set you, I could find you another, another meal that you could go to because I really feel bad. I'm, I'm canceling you last minute. So, you know... Being that, you know, she says, nah, you know, she says, don't worry about it. I have so many people I could go to. You go take care of your husband, you know, go take care of your, your husband's father. He says, I'll be okay. And she didn't want to be like one of these pity cases. Um, but really, she had nobody else to go to. She had zero, nobody else to go to. She had no ability to actually even pay for Shavuot. She had no idea what she's going to do. She hangs up the phone and, you know, pretends like, you know, everything is, you know, is okay. But then she went right back into, you know, bawling and crying. And literally not knowing how she's going to make Shavuot. Um, you know, and her mother calls her back up again. You know how it is, you know, like, so she had to do the, <clears throat> you know, get that whole, like, I'm not even crying, you know, I didn't just wake up, you know, I was, I was up all the whole time, you know, so, so uh, you know, how the people, you know, so she's getting through the whole thing. She calls up, hey, House, everything, you know, how's everything is great. She, again, she did not, one thing she did not want, she did not want to be one of the sorry cases. And she says, everything is great, you know, we're preparing for Shabbat, it's going to be amazing, don't worry about it, don't worry about me. And she goes and she hangs up. Right back, in, right back into the crying. So she realizes, listen, says she opens the freezer. She sees she has one frozen package of chicken cutlets. She takes it out says, you says, know, I don't know how this is going to be ready. She opens up the fridge. She has some conditions over there. She, and, and then she goes into the pantry. She found one can of, of mushrooms. And she says, this is, you know, somehow, this is not even good enough for one meal, but somehow this is going to have to last for three meals for Shabbat." And uh, then she decides, she says, listen, I need to go buy hala, uh, some some challah. So she goes, and she, she she tells the kids, come on, you know, let's go, we're going bye-bye. Uh, put on your boots and raincoats, and we're going out. And she goes, she opens up her, her purse. She has two and a half pounds uh, over there, which is the money currency, whoever's not familiar with it, in England. And she, she says, she's thinking, she's doing her mental, this is all the money she has left. She's like, what am I, you know, two and a half. She says, I could possibly buy maybe two medium-sized hollows and also maybe a treat for the kids. So she goes out, and she walks into the supermarket and she goes and she, she looks around and, um, she sees how, you know, she takes, you know, a little, little wagon. She's how people are pushing these big wagons are literally filling up their carts. And she passes, you know, she goes to the bakery section where she needs to buy the hollows and she sees over there the cheesecakes and her mouth starts watering. She says, oh, what I would do for it to have just a slice of a cheesecake right now. And she's looking at other people and she says, do they even know? Like they're Piling up all these things, and she does they even know? And she takes two little medium chalas and a little box of cookies. and says, "This is all I have for for Shavuot." And says, "Do they even care?" And then, of course, she starts thinking. She says, "Of course, they would care if I would actually say." But you know, I, you know, she didn't want to be that that, that petty case. And um, she goes and uh, she does her little mental math to see how much everything is going to cost, make sure she has enough money. And she realizes she's going to be a few pence, a few cents over. So she goes and she takes. The cookies and puts it back. And meanwhile, the kids start crying. They are hungry. They didn't get anything since breakfast. So she she takes the cookies back and she and changes the medium challah for a small challah. She goes and she she waits she waits online. And she goes over there and, and, uh, as they get their her turn, she goes, she pays, she gets a few cents back in change, and she makes her way out. Now it started raining again, so they're sort you know, rushing through the, you know, through the streets to make it home to get as least wet as possible. And it was, a, you know, as they were turning the corner, it was a very, you know, fancy, expensive car that goes and drives very, very close to the curb and like splashes like the entire puddle right all, over both, all three of them. And from the shock that she just got like, like basically showered with mud, She dropped the bag, the paper bag of chalas, and they ripped, and they started rolling into, into the mud. And the car just goes and zooms away. And this, this, she just like, she goes on the floor, quickly tries to salvage the, the two chalas, and she sees over there, it's like, you know, it's muddy, and she's like wiping it away. And then, and she just, this is like her breaking point. She sat on the floor, and she just started crying. She just started crying in the street, in the middle of the floor, holding her two chalas. And she goes, and she looks up, And she looks up to God, and she starts talking to God. And she says, God, you know, why? Why me? She goes and she says, and she goes to heaven, and she she started getting really angry. And then she calms herself down, and she says, and she says, listen, I know you care about me, I know you love me, and even though it's hard for me to see that right now, I would just want you to know, I love you too. But right now, I need you. please. Help me and my children. And, you know, suddenly, you know, apparently the guy who drove like a maniac or, you know, passed by her, I guess he realized something was happening. So he drove around the block. And now he sees her sitting on the floor crying, holding two challahs. He's in his mind. He's like, I probably hit her. So he quickly, you know, jumps out. Of, he pulls the car in the park, jumps out and be like, ma'am, are you okay? I'm so sorry. I didn't realize it. He's like, is everything okay? And she's like, she's like, she's, she starts crying. She's like hysterical. She's like, you ruined my challahs. You ruined my challahs. And he's like, he's like, but are you Okay. And she's like, she's like, you know, she gets up and she's like, you ruined my, he's like, he's like, I, you know, I'm sorry. He's like, come, come, come into my car. He's like, I feel terrible. Jump into my car. I'll take you back to the store. We'll get you new chalas. And she's like, you don't understand. She starts crying and she starts literally opening up now all of a sudden. She's like, he's like, I have no money to go back to the store. Says, so this is the last money that I had in my bank account that I was able to spend for these two chalas. So the guy feels terrible and says, don't worry about it. Come into the car. It's on me. Feeling that she doesn't have any other option. She sits in the car in the back seat with the two kids. And continues to cry. And, you know, the, he goes around the block, pe- pulls into the supermarket parking lot, and, he, and they go in. She, he says, listen, take a cart, take whatever you need for Yom Tov. It's on me, don't worry about it. And she goes and, uh, she takes a cart, he also takes a cart. And she's like, you know, she's, she feel bad, she first goes and gets her two chalas back. He says, listen, that's all he really owes me. But he says, you know, he says, listen, anything that you need, you can take for, khal, for that. You know, she doesn't want to be a pity case and says, Listen, he did really, you know, almost hit me. You know, okay fine. (laughs) So she goes, but she only puts in the beer minimum. Only the beer minimum. She starts packing. it. meanwhile, she sees, like, you know, I guess he took the opportunity also to do the shopping because he's, like, literally, like, putting in everything. And then they get passed by the cheesecakes again. And she sees he, like, takes, like, four different cheesecakes. And she's like, oh, maybe I should take a cheesecake. She's like, no, you know what? No, only the beer minimum. I'm not taking anything more than I need to. He's ready doing me a favor. And she walks right past by the cheesecake. And they get to the, she gets everything that she needs, the beer minimum that she needs. She walks up to, to, um, to the checkout counter. As they get to the checkout counter, you know she puts the thing on the on the conveyor belt. He puts his stuff on the conveyor belt, and you know she puts like a divider, you know, like right in between, <laughs> like this is mine. And he says, he says, no, don't worry about it. He takes out the, the divider and he goes over to the cashier and says, uh, for delivery, please. And she says, so she goes over, she says, yeah, this is mine, you know, and like this. Is, and he's like, he's like, no, no, no whole thing, delivery, please. And so her eyes are starting to water now, and she's and she's like, you know, you don't have to, I, you know, I appreciate it. And you know, he goes and the, you know, he says, what's the address? So he cut the, he cuts her off, this her benefactor, and he says, he says, listen, give her your address. She wants your address. So she gives her, she gives uh, him the address, and they ring everything up. They ring everything up. He gives the credit card. He pays for everything. And she, on the entire way back to the car, she's like, thank you so much. You don't know what this means. You literally saved my life. You know, I, I don't know what I would have done for Shavuot. And he says, don't worry about it. It's my pleasure. I feel so bad what I did to you. I hope you, you can forgive me. I feel terrible. I was in a rush. I am so sorry. And she's like, well, you have nothing to be sorry about. He says, you could do this every week if you want. <laughs> Not a problem. And um, it's totally fine. So he, she goes and she sits back in the car and, you know, you know, she felt like very vulnerable at this point in time, and she basically opened up to him, and says, listen, you know, says, I, you know, you don't understand, like, what I'm going through, I'm a single mother with two kids, my husband divorced me, whatever, abusive, the whole, the whole shebang, no money, no boss, nothing like that. And he's like, so he turns, he turns around to her as, as, as they pull up to her apartment, and he says, uh, you know, I, I never got your name, what's your name? So she says, my name is, uh, Chevy Stein. He says, so, so he pulls out his little book, and he writes something on it, and he folds up, he folds it up, and he gives it to her, and he says, "Listen." And he says, "Enjoy the holiday, and remember to smile. You're a mother of two beautiful children; they deserve a happy childhood." And she says, "Thank you so much. I really appreciate it." Tears and eyes. I don't know how I could ever thank you. He says, "Don't worry about it." She takes a piece of paper, and thinking, I don't know what it was. And she she goes out, and she watches her um she watches her benefit, you know, like the, the the her lifesaver basically draws drive away. And she sees the page, and she remembers the paper. She opens it up. I see there's a check made out to Chevy Stein for 50,000 pounds. And she starts crying again. Like, oh, this, you know, she's like, every. So the kids realize that, you know, this is a different cry than the usual cry. They were like, you know, like, so they were like, mommy, why are you crying? So she said, um, she said, you know, mommy's crying right now because she's so happy. And she says, come, let's go in. We have to get ready for Shavuot. And, you know, so she got in and she started, you know, getting ready for Shavuot. This was the first time she was actually able to fill up her, her fridge and her freezer. And, um, Bokhshan, it went unbelievable. She had a great, great Shavuot. That next Friday, she, on her door, was hanging, was, was hanging six chalas. With a, with a note there that says, you don't have to worry about having chalas anymore. And this started coming on a, on a weekly basis. On a weekly basis, every time came chalas. And occasionally, occasionally came also along with a check as well. And, um, so after this was going for some sort of time, she goes over to the bakery and says, listen, I didn't know who my, I don't even know who he is. He says, I want to thank him. He says, can you please let me know who this is so I could go and thank him? <laughs> so they said, listen, you know, it's, you know, customer, you know, we have the policy. We can't just really give over anything. And so she thinks, says, you know what, could I give you a letter and you could give it over to him? He says, yeah, not a problem. So the kids started writing letters, you know, thank you so much to our dear lifesaver. And they draw pictures. <laughs> And they, you know, every so often they would bring it to the bakery, and the bakery would deliver it to this uh, to this uh, benefactor. And uh, this went on for for quite a few months. And they kept on constantly sending, in, you know, letters and sending in this. And she said, "Thank you so much, I really appreciate it." And um, and then came time for Puliim. So Puliim came along, and she goes over to the to the bakery and says, "Listen," says, "I, you know, I still don't know who he is. Um, I want to get. We we want to make him a beautiful mishlach manot. He literally saved us." He says, "Can you please um, ask him?" he says if it's okay if we could have his address so that we could actually go and deliver this mishlah so he says uh, fine you know i you know i'll ask him so he the the a few days later she gets a letter in the in the um in the mail and this is the first letter that she ever got and it's from her benefactor and she goes over and the letter says to be like you know you know you know, hi, my name is so-and-so. You're, I really don't need anything. He says, you know, to be honest, I didn't even realize you didn't even have my address. Uh, you know, because the bakery just mailed it out to me. You know, I thought it was coming. You know, I didn't even put the two and two together. He says, uh, but if you want, by all means, I'm having a, a Purim uh, suda at my house, a Purim party. Why don't you come and bring the kids also for the Purim party? She says, perfect, excellent, perfect timing. Because uh, she's going to go. She's going to be able to go and deliver also the and Now she has also a, meal, a place to go. So she goes, and they have this. Um, Bullying comes, the kids get dressed up, they make this beautiful mishlokh manot, and they make their way to this guy, this wealthy guy's house. They get over to this, um, this wealthy, the wealthy guy's house, and he welcomes him in, welcomes him in and she just hands him mishlokh manot, and this is the first time seeing him since the last time that he, you know, he was, he was a bit older than her, um, but, you know, it's the first time seeing him since that, all that he did for her, and she couldn't even say anything, she just started, you know, crying. And so, so he says. He says. Um, he goes over to the kids and he says, "He says, come. I want to show you something." And he, you know, so all three of them, all well, four of them, go walk into the kitchen. The entire fridge is pasted with all the letters they ever sent to him from the beginning until end. And he goes over to the three to the two kids and he says, "Listen. He says, you might not know me. He says, but I know you very, very well." And he says, he knew, called him by name, he says, you're gonna sit over here, you're gonna sit over there, and he says, how's school? And he starts asking him all these questions. And this just made her cry even more. You know, she was just like, you know, she's like, I, th- you know, she's like, thank you so much. It's like, listen, don't worry about it, it's all okay. And um, you know, as, you know, the meal went on, you know, she was able to get in control of her emotions, and, you know, she, she noticed that, you know, there was a bunch of older people on the meal, but she didn't see his wife. And you know, she saw pictures of kids on the wall, but she didn't see any any uh, kids either. So she um, she goes afterwards, you know, as they're about to leave, and they say, um, you know. Where's your, where's your wife and, and kids? You know, I wanted to thank your wife also for everything I did. So he says, you know, to be honest, you know, says, uh, my wife no longer lives here. He says, uh, you know, says we got divorced a few years back. He says, you know, I became a Baal Tshuva and, um, I became religious and she had nothing, she had no interest to do with that. I have kids that are quite older already and they either didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I only see them really when they come for money. But other than, that, you know, I don't really, I don't really see them. So she says, "I'm so sorry. I you know, I didn't mean." He says, no, "No, no, don't worry about it. It's okay. Don't worry about it." So she goes. She goes home, and you know, a few weeks later, she gets another invitation. He says, "Why don't you mind? You know, we don't live too far. Why don't you come over for Shabbat meal?" So she started coming over for Shabbat meal, and uh, this went on for quite some time. Then one day her benefactor, his name is Adam, comes over to her and he says, listen, and he goes over and he says, listen, I, you know, I don't want to make anything weird or anything like that. Um, but, you know, he says, and no matter what happens, he says, know that you'll constantly and you'll always have my support. And you'll always, you know, I feel like this, you know, these children, I have a strong connection to them. You will always get those challahs. You will always get the money. But um, maybe I could, uh, you know, Take you out one time for dinner, you know, just you and not the uh, not the kids. So and he's starting to stammer and he's starting to you know mutter and he's starting to you know turn red. And he says, "But it's okay," you know, like he's like, "It's okay, I understand," you know, I'm a little bit. Oh, it's fine, it's all okay. And she's like, and she's like, you know, Adam. She says with a smile, "says I would love it." And um, so they went and they started, uh, you know, they started to the date. And uh, four months later, they were married. Four months later, they were married. And she finishes the story with this note. And I want to read you this note. And this note is like this. It says, "One Eve." I thought, Hashem, I thought you've forsaken me. I thought you forgot about me. You, uh, um, but you never forget. As a father never forgets a child. And today I am ever so grateful that my best friend canceled on me. That my ex didn't let me leave the country. That my boss didn't pay me. And that I used my last few dollars to buy those two chalas, which got ruined. And today I am happier than I ever thought I would ever be in my life. Thank you, Hashem. I love you too. That was assigned, assigned by her. It says, no matter what happens in life, we have to realize that no matter what happens, God loves us as a father loves a child. This is, and the formula is very, very simple. It's in Parshot the This It says, the, the formula for a happy and successful life is very simple. If you follow my laws, if you follow my Torah, you follow, I have guidelines. There are things that you need to do for a woman. There's Sliud, there's Shabbat, there's Kosher. There's things that you need to do. If you follow that, then you'll have material prosperity. You'll have success in everything that you do. But if you don't, then it goes to the Torah. The pasha goes on and gives harsh rebuke for people that don't follow the Torah. It says, but know that all this comes from love. Everything comes from love. The question is, how do you want to be a recipient of this love? Do you want it to come as a wake-up call, or do you want it to come as a nice and, and uh, beautiful uh, way? the idea is is that we have to make our love unconditional this is our love between our spouses a love between our friends it has to be unconditional because that is true love when you have unconditional love this is then eventually you can be able to have this unconditional love for god how do people unfortunately when they have when they become devout when they become religious what do they think right away okay listen god I became religious, generally, what, you know, some people unfortunately, why do they become religious? They go and let's say they have a problem with Panasah. They can't make money. So, they, you know, they tried business, they tried school, they tried this, they tried anything else. Nothing else worked. Let me try God for a little bit. Let me see, maybe this will work out. So they go and they become, in God, I've been keeping Shabbat, I've been keeping kosher. Where's my money? Come on, let me see the, let me see the, let me see it rain. It's like, I don't see it. So they're coming in. That's not that's conditional love. When you're doing something for God, it should be unconditional. God works measure for measure. You want Him to to, to give you prosperity unconditional. Look at Pascha You go for Him. He is going to do for you, and He could do a lot more than you can do anything for Him. And in fact, you never do anything for Him. You're doing only anything only for yourself. There's a Midrash, a very, very short story. We're going to end with this. Very short story in Midrash, in Shira, uh, I believe in Shia Shirin, that a woman was married for, for many years, and they did not have any children. So they went over to Abshir and Bar Yochai, and they asked him, it says, you know, he wanted to basically divorce her, because the, the halacha is, if a woman, you're married for a long time, you don't have any children, a man is obligated to have children, and you have your, the ability to go divorce her and marry somebody else. So he says, yes, you know, you can get divorced, but you should make a celebration. Because this you're doing this for God. Just like you got married and joy, so too you're doing this for God. You're doing it joy. So, fine. They did. They listened to our by high, They went and they made a great feast. They made a great... And the husband, you know, they, everybody was in a good mood. The husband goes over to his soon-to-be ex-wife um, and he says, listen. He says, you know, I really care about you. I really love you. I really appreciate everything. Um, he says, and from that, he was a very wealthy man. Anything that you want from my house, take to your father's house and it's yours to keep. He says, you can take anything that you want, my gratitude to you, take it and it's yours." So she goes and she feeds him a little bit more wine, and uh, he he falls asleep. He falls asleep. He's, he falls asleep, and she goes and she calls her servants, and he says, uh, "Bring him to my father's house." <laughs> <laughs> he wakes up the next morning, and he wakes up, and he's like, "He's like, this isn't my bed." He's like, what, "What's going on over here?" And she turns. Oh, he turns over and he sees his wife. You know, it was supposed to be. You know, he was supposed to be wife. getting divorced. And well, the night next wife, yeah. Right. He says, uh, um, "He says, what's going on over here?" And she says, "You told me I could take whatever I want from your house." And he says, "I only want one thing." And I want you, oh. and he says I will never be able to live happily without you. And so he was so so he was so emotional from that. He goes and he says he says he, they got they they didn't get divorced. They didn't get divorced. They got they got married, and later they were actually they actually went and they actually were were they did have a kid. They did have they did have a child. That's in that. the best part. That, is the, best part. that <laughs> the, the when you you know there there is something that you know there's a bracha in the house. We're finishing with this. There's a bracha in the house when you have shalom. When you have peace in the house, when you have happiness in the house, there's blessing in the house. You want to get that blessing? This is the way to do it. It's the unconditional love. This is what we spoke about. That you have to, if you really want to love somebody, whether it's your children, whether it's whatever it is, your spouse, and most importantly, between you and God, the love should be unconditional. No matter what happens, you're going to love God. No matter what God throws in you, I'm going to love you. This is just like the story with the Holocaust. You can take away anything. No matter what, I love you unconditionally. This is the idea. And Bezrat Hashem, may we have the merit to have this true love, this Ahava, that's going to be something that is unconditional, not only between our spouses, between our children, between Ben Adam Lechaver, and, and most importantly, between us and God. Zakabo, okay. Any questions? <laughs> Alright, so excellent question. The question is, what about the love for oneself? Now, um, this is extremely, extremely important because if you don't love yourself, you cannot love anybody else. So the fundamental, you have to have, you have, to have a love of yourself. Now, this is very, very different with a, a strong ego or high ego that all I care about is myself and that is nothing you know else. That, that is a very, very detrimental, especially in relationships. It's going to go bad. The, the, the important is that you have to have a high self-esteem. You have to realize you have to appreciate who you are and you have to realize you have some self-worth. The problem is that many people nowadays don't think that they're, they're worth anything. And if you don't think you're worth anything, it says, you have to love somebody else like your friend. What happens if you don't love yourself? So what, you're going to love your friend not like you love yourself? Um, so it is very, very imperative that you go and you uh, love yourself. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you go shopping for yourself and you go spend all the money for yourself. That means that you have a healthy, healthy self-respect of yourself and realize that you are a daughter of God and that you have this, this, uh, this unbelievable potential of who you are no matter what mistakes you did in your life. And no matter how much you fell, you have the ability to overcome it all and become great. And when you believe that, then you can start loving yourself and you'll be able to also love other people. That's the thing. If you want to have um, children that have high self esteem the number one thing is the children see about the parents the, par- the children are able to see if the parents have a low self esteem what 's going to be for the children Any other questions nothing you 've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by torahanytime dot com